listen, same vision is for equal rights and justice for the people, them. What's happening to this beautiful world that we're living in? World citizen, lift up your voice. Welcome to another episode of the People Powered Planet Podcast, where each week we have wonderful discussions with amazing solutionaries focusing on solving, not just exposing the problems of the world, but rather finding solutions that can help move us toward a people-powered planet. And today we have the very special opportunity of celebrating the 102nd birthday of the inspiration for our program, Gary Davis, world citizen number one. Uh, and tomorrow is his birthday, uh, so we're we're welcoming all of you to celebrate it here today. Uh, thank you for being with us. And today, uh, to celebrate that, we're going to start out for the for the introduction with David Gallup. Now, David Gallup worked with Gary closely for decades. He is the president of the World Service Authority that Gary founded. Uh, he's a lawyer, an international lawyer, an international human rights lawyer, and his uh, his his staff there in Washington D.C. Uh, not only issues passports and documents, which many of them he has to work on personally, but he has legal interns who work with him, assisting people who have challenges to their human rights. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, turn this over to David to uh, to welcome the special guest we have for Gary's birthday and to tell us a little bit more about the uh, amazing opportunity we have to celebrate World Citizen Day, the birthday of world citizen number one, Gary Davis. Da David Gallup, can you take it away? Yes, yeah, certainly. Thank you, Arthur and Melanie, for uh, helping us to celebrate Gary's 102nd birthday and World Citizen Day and the World Citizenship Movement. I'd like to uh, not say anything about me right now. I can talk later. Uh, but I want to introduce Dr. Shada Jahanbani, who's an associate professor of history at the University of Kansas, who was with us for a full month with a, a graduate student archivist and also an historian uh, going through the hundreds of boxes of Gary Davis uh, papers, uh, ephemera, uh, to because she's working on a book project about world citizenship to some degree about Gary Davis. So uh, Dr. John Bonnie, why don't you introduce yourself, tell us a little bit more about the importance of uh, maintaining this uh, information for the public to see uh, Gary Davis's legacy and, and what your interest is in involvement in this uh, activity. Thank you, David. Well, first, I want to say to a couple of the people here, I recognize your names from some of Gary's papers, and I want to say thank you for all the work that, that you did and, and the historical record that you all left behind. And also, David, for carefully keeping the material that came from Gary's uh, personal collection uh, when he passed. So what an extraordinary gift that is that will help people like me and hopefully people who are interested in world citizenship more broadly to really understand the significance of Gary's story and the example that he set, the ideas that he generated, and the incredibly creative ways he tried to institutionalize those ideas. So I am a history professor at the University of Kansas. I'm a historian. My own work is focused on international history and US foreign relations more broadly. And I became really interested in graduate school in the concept of the global, or we might say the concept of the world. Historians always, always emphasize 
that every single thing, whether it's an idea, an image, a story, has a history, an event. And so the idea that so many of the different um, political issues and social issues that we talk about often have the qualifier global put before them, whether it's the environment, whether it's health, whether it's poverty, um, became for me a, a kind of curious historical question. When did the global begin to make sense to people? And, and when might it have become a powerful way to describe a concept? So my first book, uh, which is coming out in September from Oxford University Press, is about the origins of the concept of global poverty in American social and political thought. And as I've been thinking about what I want to do next, the, the kind of topic that became most interesting to me was this question of world citizenship, which is, as all of you know, an especially interesting legal concept. And so in my initial research, um, I found that this story of this very um, sprightly and interesting person named Gary Davis kept popping up. And because I'm a fairly diligent researcher, I started by sending out a smattering of emails to various institutions that I thought might have some connection to Gary. And much to my um, happiness, David responded and said, yeah, not only am I running the World Service Authority, not only did I work with Gary Davis, but I've got a basement full of stuff that I would be happy to let you look at. And that, for a historian, is the dream. Um, so I was able to, we, we talked about this before the pandemic, it was like late March 2020, we first started talking about this. And so that obviously was, um, was a significant obstacle to me getting there. But this summer, I finally was able to spend five weeks at Five Thomas Circle, and able to really dive into the extraordinary volume of material that Gary left behind. So um, I spent some time digitizing, I spent some time organizing. David and I have talked about how we might get this material in the hands of a professional archivist so that they might be able to really preserve the material according to the highest archival standards. What I was there to figure out and what will not be surprising to anybody on this um, Zoom or even listening to this conversation is really how significant the collection was. And as I said to David on like, I don't know, day one and a half, um, it's very significant. There's so much good and rich material that I think scholars of world government, of world citizenship, and of the history of um, international cooperation and peace can really make so much out of. So that's kind of my uh, initial spiel. David, what would you, What are there questions you want me to answer? Or are there other things you're interested in? Um, I mean, just mention a little bit about Swarthmore, I think, since you, and I talked to Robin Lloyd about that because she mentioned that the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom has their papers at Swarthmore. So it seems like it would be a great fit. Yeah, so, um, you know, I am a historian, not an archivist, and those are very different jobs. Um, we as historians rely immensely on the work of archivists and archives to preserve the historical record. And so one of the things I really wanted to 
try to, to, you know, get going is a really formal archival preservation of Gary's material. So um, part of, you know, uh, my intellectual agenda is to have a sense of where relevant material might be and kind of what the best archives are in terms of um, collecting and preserving information on this topic. And so Swarthmore University in Pennsylvania has a, basically a 90-year-old collection. It's one of the most extraordinary collections on peace in the world that they have been putting together with all sorts of different organizational papers. And so I've been encouraging David to, um, to think about donating this material to Swarthmore. It's really extraordinary, although this is a little bit of inside baseball, that they have a dedicated archival curator. So not just the people who go through the papers, but somebody who has responsibility for all of the collections just on the topic of peace. And so institutionally, I think not only would they have extraordinary interest, but I think it would really mean that Gary's material and Gary's story would be accessible and available to people who are interested in um, both uh, elevating the significance of peace movements and also really excavating the history of those movements so that we understand, you know, on the most basic level, what worked, what didn't, how can we think about the future using what we know from the past. Okay, thank you, Shada. I know you have to run because you're in the middle of a conference, but does anyone have maybe another sure. quick question for, for Shada before she has to run? Well, uh... A couple of things, uh, two, two, well, a brief question, and then also something, I, well, the brief question, how did you get interested in Gary before you heard of the World Service Authority or saw our film, The World is My Country? So um, again, because I'm really interested in the sort of origins of how people made sense of the term global, I did a bunch of keyword searches for citizenship and global, and then citizenship and world. And as I did that, of course, primary sources, especially newspaper articles came up about Gary. And the more I kind of started to poke around, I have French, and so I was able to um, search French newspapers and I mean, there are, I think if you just search the years 1948 to 1950, I think there are about 800 articles on Gary in major French newspapers. So for a historian, that's a sign of someone's significance. And what the, the, the sort of the treasure for us is when we see that somebody was really significant in their historical moment and yet maybe not so well known in the present because that means there's an interesting story there where something has been lost. And so, you know, even though there was enormous coverage of Gary's passing, um, I, it struck me as really important that that story had not been told. Uh, and and so that's what, what kind of first raised my... Um, you know, it's almost like uh, the the detective sort of alarm bells go off, like, oh, there's something here that we don't know about that we should. Well, that was key thing. You know, when, when we were getting producing the Gary Davis movie, we said this is a lost piece of history that is vital to the world today. And we had to get it out in the in the in in the film. And, and we've also I've also written a screenplay for Gary and hope we're going to get a feature film going if we can get the right connections and so on to do that. Uh, so that we tell his story to the huge to the world, um, but the just this right now, just because of the lack of funding, uh, our movie hasn't reached as many people as it needs to. You've watched the world as my country, right? Yeah. Yes, I have. So I'd like to also invite you to take a look at uh, our sources because we found an incredible 
number of, uh, uh, you know, clip it, clips, things held by, uh, by, and maybe you already have done this, uh, by various uh, 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 sources of digital material of, uh, and, and also, for example, when we were making our film, some of it isn't digitalized. Like we had, we had photo researchers uh, in in Paris and Washington D.C. at UCLA. And for instance, UCLA said, uh, "Well, uh, we've got this reel down in the basement that says Gary Davis. We don't even know if it's the same Gary. It'll, uh, but uh, it'll cost you a thousand dollars just to digitalize it, so we can find out what's on it." Uh, so we took the chance and did, and it turned out to be the incredible footage in our film that you saw was totally pristine, not a scratch on it. Nobody had ever even played it of, of Gary on the on the boat uh, going by the Statue of Liberty, where he says, "I'm just one, I'm not the leader. I'm it's not a, it's not I'm not it's not a movement. It's uh, it's I'm just one of the world citizens in the community of world citizens." Uh, that incredible footage came from there. Now, there are also outtakes of the parts we didn't use of all those clips. Uh, so maybe what I should do is send you our, uh, we have a, a, a point by point uh, layout of the storyboard of where each source, each thing in the film came from. And you may wanna see that document and then look at some of these original um, archival sources, maybe you already have, but of, of digital material on Gary. How much have you already done of finding digital and photogra photographic material. Actually, the digital material, not so much. So that would be great. And I do want to say, you know, obviously I'm interested in the collection and helping David make sure that it's preserved. I'm also writing a book on, this is sort of what led me to this whole thing, on world citizenship as a concept and a set of practices. Um, and my my first presentation is at a big conference for historians in February, and I'm I'm hoping to present material on on what I found this summer in Gary's papers. So yes, let's absolutely continue that conversation because right. the digital sources are very hard to find. Um, and in fact, you know, other than a few newsreels here and there, I have not found much material. And when I watched the film, I was struck by how diligent your researchers must have been because they did find some obviously really extraordinary stuff go ahead and email me and i'll at least send you that uh, those storyboards for starters and then we can see where we go from there excellent thank you so much yeah we would love to find material that you have that might be useful especially because we've uh, uh martin sheen has proposed that we do a series on gary's life and we've got the film but that we do an ongoing series and of course, you've read his book, uh, My Country is the World. Um, as you see, there's so much more in that story that's not in our uh, our film uh, because you just had, couldn't fit it all in, <laughs> in one movie. Uh, and so hopefully a lot of that will come out as we do the series. So you'll be an incredible resource to the series. So if you could send me your bio and things like that, I'd like to add you, if, you, if I could, uh, to the proposal for the series, maybe a little write-up of what you're doing that I can include in our series proposal. Okay. Happy to do it. Happy to do it. Okay. I'll sh I'll shoot you an email. Okay, terrific. And uh, yeah, th that would be great. And as we as we build this, uh, if we can build other people with credentials that could be part of the advisory board of that series, uh, that would be powerful. So thank you. I don't know. Do you have time for one more quick question or comment? Sure, I do. Okay. Michael, I think you had a question. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I I I love that you mentioned. Uh, you know, you were talking about global poverty and uh, how it ties in with the, the world citizenship identity and, and getting, you know, basic human rights 
met and basic needs met. So uh, I had the good fortune of working with Global Citizen and I just wanted to point out the existence of Global Citizen ORG, if you have, you, you may know about it already. And uh, the, their festival is coming up uh, in September 23rd. And uh, they work closely with the United Nations and try to bring up, talk about the sustainable development goals and so on. So they're trying to start a movement. And so I think that would be definitely a valid uh, important aspect of your ongoing research and how global citizenship and world citizenship, I mean, as far as I can see, pretty much the same thing. And uh, if, we, if uh, David and I are successful in creating this world citizen digital identity, then we, we thinking that in, in the future we could partner with them because we would have like a citizen social network that, they, that we could fuse with their incredible work they've done over 10 years you know, raising $45 billion for extreme poverty and, and so on. Yeah, that's a fascinating organization. And um, I love the t-shirt. Thank you for mentioning that though. Yes, wonderful work. So, so glad to see that you're doing this. It's just amazing. Good. And before you go, I see we have the wonderful opportunity to have Robin Lloyd on the call, who is a close companion of Gary for many years and who uh, actually has roots in the world citizen movement way back before that. I presume you've uh, maybe interviewed Robin and maybe Robin can say a few words because she is a great source for uh, of, of archival <laughs> and of uh, historical memory of the world citizen movement. Uh, Robin, do you want to go on, uh, go for a few minutes and ask any further questions or comments? Yeah, so uh, I met uh, Gary in uh, the fall of 1989. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's when our romance began. And uh, of course, that was the time that uh, Europe was kind of in disarray and Gorbachev had declared disarmament and into the Cold War and everything. And so the barrier between people were were dissolving and it seemed like it would be a fun time for the two of us to go to uh, take a walk on the Berlin Wall and watch world citizens actually bring it down. So, um, I mean, Gary was elated. I mean, this was where everyone was becoming a world citizen. You know, I, I brought my camera. We didn't really have a plan in mind for a film, but it was an extraordinary opportunity to, for me as a filmmaker visually, to show people uh, asserting their human rights, taking, hammering on the wall with, with uh, chisels, pulling segments down with ropes, people separated now talking through, you know, gaps and basically, in other words, physically asserting their world citizenship. It was, um, it was quite a, so we made the little film, A Passport to Freedom. I don't know whether you've seen that, Shana. Is that the way you say your name? Shada. Um, there, there actually was uh, not, I didn't have a VHS um, player at WSA, but there were many VHS tapes. And in fact, there are a couple boxes. I, I put a little note and said, you know, okay, I got to make a list so that I can ask David to, to have these either converted or we can figure out how to do that. Um, but actually I did see photographs of that visit, Robin. You are on my list, of course, to get in touch with David and I talked about how to reach you um, because, uh, well, the photographs are great. And I, I think they're probably in an envelope with your handwriting on it because it says our trip to Berlin. And there are all of these wonderful pictures. 
um, that are, uh, I think, especially evocative of the moment that you're describing. So yeah, what an exciting, I mean, I think one of the things that's so interesting about Gary's story is how his sort of, his luck in living a very long life means that we really see his idea kind of undulating through the immediate post-World War II moment, the Cold War and all of its, you know, the Cold War dynamics around, for instance, revolutionary nationalism have all sorts of interesting things to say about, about global and world citizenship. And then the 1970s, the refugee crisis, I saw a lot of material in the papers um, from ordinary people who maybe this is the only record of their existence, you know, who would write from refugee camps with, some of the most touching material I found, I thought, were letters, detailed letters to Gary saying, you know, here's the condition of my life. These are, you know, from 1973 to about 1978. And some of them would draw pictures of the communities they'd left behind, which, you know, just is such a beautiful um, uh, example of how people felt connected to him and also hopeful and uh, emotionally invested in this movement. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, yes, the 1980s and the end of the Cold War. I think this is such an interesting arc um, and, and one that really helps us. I think Gary is kind of a useful way to think about this huge time period and how nationalism and internationalism, how peace and war are all kind of um, evolving as, as uh, usable concepts during this time. So I think he really is an important key to a lot of meaningful transformations that help us understand how we get to the world we're in now, where to a certain extent, we have more global interaction than ever before. And yet also, as we just saw during COVID, you know, borders are in some ways more powerful than they have been in a long time. So uh, there are some really interesting dynamics here that I'm, I'm excited to explore and hopefully communicate to you all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, if you want to see the film Passport to Freedom, it's on my website, Green Valley Media. You can just go, I think it's... Uh... I forget under under what category, but um, it's right there. And uh, so just a few more words. Um, of course, to get to the wall, we had to pass through those, um, those pesky border um, control places that Gary really um, wanted to get rid of. And uh, the film shows one of them where a young official was uh, kind of looking com- perplexed and he called in a higher level person and Gary, uh, because he looked like such a diplomat being a white male, of course that helped, uh, <laughs> uh, says um, calmly, this is a UN mandated passport and they passed him on. But there was another occasion, which I didn't get to film, which was very, uh, I thought it was going to fall apart. He inadvertently pulled out his Oceanus passport. I think we were going from Germany to Russia. I'm, I'm forgetting exactly what uh, control point we were at. And, um, uh, you know, which is a passport representing the seas. And the official asked, what is, uh, well, what is this? And what is the capital of Oceanus? You know, I mean, it, it doesn't have a capital. It's, it's a passport for the oceans. And Gary, of course, nonplus, just, you know, kept talking. Uh, it's down there between 
you know, uh, uh, Australia and New Zealand. He made something totally up. And <laughs> he was a very, seemed to be a very trained um, official. He was a Dutch guy. I mean, eventually sort of uh, gave up and he passed us both through. So <laughs> and, and Gary was an ambassador, right? He, uh, that's right. He was an ambassador. That was all the more reason to not question. Him He's an to... ambassador from Oceania. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and which brings up the whole point, because I was Googling Oceania um, in preparation for talking with you all, and it's there's very little information there. So, David, that will be a, a, a great opportunity, because there must be a fair amount of that in in his um, in his archives. Um, so uh, citizens of the world, it doesn't actually deal with um, with Gary, but it deals with my grandmother and my um, aunt and some of the people that were um, that he was impressed with because my grandmother was one of the first people to propose a, a, a world government in 1938 as a way to avoid World War II, which didn't happen. But anyway, very interesting book, Megan Threll Killed. Yes, I'm, I have that book on my shelf. And I'm uh, one of the things I just, I'll, I'll leave you all with, I don't know how many of you have, have seen the Oppenheimer movie. Um, uh, my, we're, I'm a Cold War historian, so I had to go see it. And there's actually an extraordinary moment, which is on my list of things to, to follow up on in which, you know, Oppenheimer, and this comes from the American Prometheus biography, says that the reason why he's not concerned about the world after the advent of nuclear weapons is that, of course, there will be a world government, and it will be the only thing that will make people, all people, see how we need a world government. And I found that so intriguing that I had to run and look in the biography to see if that was actually, you know, if that was just a sort of it's not often that the phrase world government comes up in a feature film. So I was intrigued. And I think one of the things that I hope to do in this project is really recapture how meaningful the concept and widespread the concept was, how widely people thought that world government was the next step. Um, and, and how, again, we've sort of lost some of the urgency around that. And I'm really interested as a historian in, in the question of why. I mean, why don't we have what seemed like such an obvious next step for such a variety, such a diverse number of people? Um, so that's, I think, an interesting big question. I, I am going to have to get back to my retreat. I wish so much I could stay with you all. Um, but this has been really fun. And hopefully, David, we can we can connect again with this fantastic group of people. Say to save the chat, there's some incredible, uh, excellent material there. And I also just put in warwithoutwinners.com where you'll see uh, both are, are talking about the Oppenheimer movie, both the great parts about it, but we also include an omitted scene that was omitted from the movie. So uh, everyone may want to go to warwithoutwinners.com. Excellent. Thank you all so much for hosting me. Um, some important documents, actually, or at least one that, that uh, Dr. John Bonnie Shada had found just in her five, four to five weeks here in Washington, D.C. Uh, but, but right before I get to that, I'm going to press enter on on my um, uh, on the chat. And just to talk about the importance of, of the idea of world government, which is really where uh, Shada was ending her comments. Uh, there's this wonderful book called The Politics of World Federation, written by uh, Joseph Barada, who was 
um, a featured guest at the Citizens for Global Solutions uh, book club uh, a few books ago. It's an amazing two volume book, which really highlights all of the incredible people who were, were and even well-known people who were involved in promoting the idea of world government during the 40s and 50s until sort of the Cold War really you know, put uh, damper on all of that. So anyway, that's a book I would suggest. But so in the archives, and I'll share my screen because I want you to see this. And if you'll indulge me for about three minutes, I will I will read this statement because I think it's so important that you hear this statement uh, and you can at least partly read along. But let me share this document, which is um, a document that that Shada found uh, with her, her uh, partner about NATO. Uh, and this was written a uh, statement that Gary sent to the press uh, literally the night before NATO was created on the 4th of April, 1949. This is from 1949. It could have been written today, though. So let me quickly read. Uh, this is Gary talking. Today is a sad day for me. I am sad because tomorrow we shall witness an act which will show clearly how far from our real problems our leaders have strayed, how tragically our common needs are misunderstood. I refer to the signing of the Atlantic Pact by the diplomats of seven non-communist nations in Washington. This pact has been heralded by the leading statesmen of the West as a milestone on the road to world peace, damned by those in the East as a concrete step to World War III, glorified by leading writers as a realistic solution to a tense international situation, branded by others as a capitalist move toward world domination, called defensive and preventive on one side of the curtain, offensive and aggressive on the other. I am neither a politician nor a writer, just a simple individual caught like many others between great powers. But I must raise my voice against another illusion of security as I did once against the United Nations. I speak for neither bloc. I speak for the undivided world, humanity. This Atlantic pact is of course an, as aggressive as any so-called defense pact between sovereign nations, whether signed in Moscow or Washington. When sovereign nations group for defense against other sovereign nations, Fear and insecurity is intensified between them rather than abated. The quote unquote enemy is challenged into corresponding action. The armament race continues and war approaches swiftly. To my mind, this Atlantic Pact simply announces to the world that the world of nations is formally split into two armed camps, that the United Nations had been officially recognized as impotent, and that the armament race between East and West continues now out in the open. I accuse no one of bad faith. These men serve well the institutions they represent as they serve the United Nations, which they have now forsaken as their confreres serve the League of Nations. And so we must expect that they will tell the world that they are protecting their people against potential Russian aggression, that the Soviets are enemies, in quotes, preparing World War III. The Russian leaders also serve their state well with the same accusations against the West. Therefore, both sides manufacture their offensive weapons purely for, quote unquote, defense. Both sides seek satellites for the approaching battle. Both sides are, share equally in the future war guilt. I am not concerned with these charges and countercharges, though they degrade the accusers and confuse the real issues. They are inevitable between diplomats of sovereign nations. I am concerned, as we all are, with those who will pay when the last diplomatic bluff is called. The quote unquote little people of the world who don't want war, whether they live in Philadelphia, London, Paris, or Stalingrad, yet who will do the fighting and the dying. This is the real reason for my sadness. While our representatives in Washington and Moscow threaten each other in our names, playing with our lives at the conference tables, we sit fearfully, resignedly, waiting patiently for the order to march against one another. So to me, 
The Atlantic Pact is a fact uh, clarifies our individual choice. Our statesmen in recognizing the emptiness of the United Nations are demonstrating by this backward step into even smaller alliances, their complete dedication to the oppressive sovereign state system, which has led to two previous world wars. In this dedication, both communist and non-communist leaders are in complete agreement. They have chosen nationalism, sovereign state imperialism, world lawlessness, and eventual war. But fortunately, the decision of war and peace ultimately rests with us. Therefore, we, the people of the world, whose common problems extend beyond any one nation or groups of nations, must now make our choice. We can follow our separate diplomats meekly into the obvious destruction, or we can reach across frontiers to join fellow beings in a positive action for world sovereignty, world citizenship, and world government. There is no longer any room for compromise. So when I, when I wow. that statement, I, I just, I felt I had to read it to you. I know it took a few minutes here, but that could wow. have been today about the division in the world, about the, the, the war in Russia and Ukraine and, and how, you know, NATO is, is certainly uh, uh, an institution that is really divisive in, in many ways. So anyway, I, I don't know if anyone has any comments or thoughts about that, but this was one of the um, documents that, that Shada uh, and the archivist she was working with found uh, among all the paperwork was this amazing statement, which you know, wow. I, you know I, I had never seen before. So that wow. was 1949, that was just one, one oh, year what? after declaring his- uh, Yes, Exactly, Robin. Yeah. It was the night before NATO officially became a, a, a treaty. It was on, on April 3rd of, of 1949, and April 4th was when NATO officially Incredible. Came. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Very it, it yeah. is. Wow. <laughs> it's an incredible, uh, uh, incredible statement. Uh, you know, just the other day, I was listening to Ro uh, Robert Kennedy Jr.'s uh, uh, foreign policy address where he laid out very clearly quoting his uh, his uncle and so on uh, that that NATO was leading toward extinction almost along the same lines the kind of thing that Gary was talking about uh, that saying that we need we need to understand what our uh, uh, we need to just put ourselves in the shoes of our enemy and look at, at what it feels like to Russia to be surrounded by hostile powers and having seen a country that's already dropped a bomb, uh, come, breaking their agreements and coming right up to our border with, and surrounding us and, and, and using this war as a pretext and stating that their eventual roles of regime change, domination turning, that, that we have to see that that's their side. And to have a presidential candidate acknowledging and saying that I thought was extraordinary. So I, I do recommend listening to uh, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr.'s foreign policy address. It's been had a million views on uh, on YouTube, on YouTube, so it's well worth watching. Now I think, isn't it time for us to maybe uh, each share uh, perhaps a few stories? I feel like I've talked already, so I'd love to hear, uh, you know, if there's any time at the end, I'll, I'm happy to share a story or two, because I did, as, as Arthur said, I worked with Gary for almost 25 years uh, before he died. Uh, so there's many, many, uh, you know, day-to-day -day interactions that I had with him, either here in our office in Washington or, uh, or over the phone. Oftentimes it was with, with me while he was up in Burlington. Uh, anyway, I don't know. Yeah, Arthur and Melanie. Yeah, I can, I can go ahead and share. I'll share a quick story. So I feel so honored. Of course, I'm honored to know Robin, and I was so honored to be. I consider a friend of Gary's. We talked. As I was driving to work, it took an hour, so we'd talk the whole time. And the biggest, the most impressive thing that that I saw 
well, he did a lot of impressive things, but we were, Arthur and I were going to India for uh, the Lucknow Conference of Judges. And uh, it was 2007. And, uh, you know, I was filming him the whole way. And we got, he got through, it was in New York City in 2007. And he just used his world passport. It was stamped five times. He got through, no problem. It was, uh, we, we had camera crew in New Delhi to greet and film. And uh, so we landed, everything was great. There was a customs agent came up and just shook his hand and everything was fine and dandy. He'd already been to uh, India four other times and it's no problem. And then just because um, one person's decisions, that's how it is, very arbitrary, um, that he was denied. He was denied <laughs> to, go, to get out of the airport and he was led away by these two customs agents. And as I watched him go, this, this you know, I was like, how courageous, how courageous. <laughs> so. Now, yeah. transition, transition. He he made it back fine and dandy. So you know, it's just very powerful moment, and I just wanted to share it. Well, Melanie also uh, snuck in a few shots of the customs agents interrogating him, and you see that in our film mm -hmm. that she was able to film through the doors. They were interrogating him, and you see him taking them on, and he had absolutely no fear, no discouragement. I mean, you know, Gary Gary was always uh, outranked all these people. Uh, if, a, if a person came to his door, an FBI agent, because he was world territory and all the things he did that weren't, weren't abiding by the local and regional laws, went by world law, uh, they'd pull out their badge. He'd pull out his badge. He'd ask them, you know, they wouldn't pull out their badge. He would ask them for their identification. He would pull out his badge and ask them for their identification papers and their uh, ID and their badge. And he would outrank them, you know, and he had just incredible because he's the from the world and they're they're just from a lowly nation state. So uh, Gary had this incredible uh, chutzpah uh, to take on. He's totally fearless. I mean, he would go through prison, threats of being killed. None of that would face him in the slightest. He was just he never got intimidated by anything. But I think now because we've got Robin on and she's such an extraordinary resource, I hope uh, she can share more with us because. I mean, God, she could probably take, you know, several, several hours to tell the stories. But do you want to jump in with something, Robin? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, that was the, the main story I uh, wanted to share was traveling with him. Uh, and uh, uh, Melanie had the same experience in a way, uh, uh, being with him and being uh, worried that is this, are we going to, carry are we going to carry this off and yes he managed to carry it off <laughs> who else here knew gary is there anybody else in the podcast here charlotte did charlotte don't okay let charlotte jump in then uh, uh and then robin if you think of some more stories or things to tell please come back in again but go ahead charlotte well i got to know him i can't even remember how we met but it was in the 80s and of course i was involved in the peace movement and all and we ended up spending some time together. And, uh, you know, I was so impressed by the fact that here he was on Broadway before and after World War II, but during the war, he was a bomber pilot. And he told me about how 
they would be going back from a bombing site and if they had any bombs left in the the plane they just randomly drop them just so that they could land back at the base wherever they were uh with empty so to speak um but anyway he he really impressed me and i don't know how we ended up kind of uh not seeing each other after a point we both had our separate lives of course and i just would occasionally see him but there was one time when I had to go for meetings in New York City and he arranged to go there too. And we went to see Jason Robarts and Iceman Cometh. And after the, the, the play, uh, we went back there. Of course, he and Jason had been on Broadway together. And so we went to the backstage and talked with Jason for a time. And, um, but, he was an amazing person. And as you say, perseverance and bravado. It's definitely that. So. Wow. Now, was that after or before Jason Robards starred in the day after the movie that convinced Ronald Reagan not to fight World War III and actually stepped us back from the war? Was it before or after that? It had to have been before. Yeah. So I would imagine because I don't remember talking about what year, that. What year was it? Uh, do you have any idea? It was early to mid '80s. Okay, because 1983 was when the day after came out, and when he starred in that. And uh, that movie, uh, if you go to our website, the People Powered Planet podcast, you'll see our wonderful interviews with that director and the new movie that's out. Uh, uh, that's not really yet gotten really distribution, which is uh, called uh, Television Event, which tells the full story of how. Uh, uh, the ABC movie got made and how it actually did uh, step us back from from uh, nuclear war that Ronald Reagan got gave him nightmares. And he said, I, I, I can't you know, I've got to. My generals are wrong when they're telling me we can fight and win a nuclear war. And he went to uh, uh, start uh, arms reduction with, with the Russians. Uh, go ahead. Who else has a, a, you know, any more stories you want to jump in with, Charlotte or anyone else or. Robin, go ahead. I, I do have something more to share, and that is that um, Greg Guma, who um, has been a close friend of mine, uh, also he uh, authored a book with Gary, Passport to Freedom, and um, it's it, there we go. Okay, and uh, it's really a, a valuable book because it resulted in a lot of collaboration between the two of them and. Uh, arguments, of course. Uh, but uh, I think uh, people will find it, it very useful. We should we should have uh, Greg on on this show right now. I could call him up and tell him to to pop in, but um, maybe we're too close to the ending here. Well, if you, if you can, that would be fine. Uh, or maybe why don't we see if we could schedule another podcast with, with you, Greg, uh, David. Let's see if we can just go ahead and schedule uh, another one and do that and bring him yeah, on. So, because yeah, yeah, I, I really haven't, I would love to hear from him and have more in depth time with him. So, yeah. let's do that as a scheduled event. Okay. Uh, excellent. Wonderful. <laughs> oh, go ahead, Melanie, you want to jump in? Oh, I just wanted to mention uh, tomorrow is actual, actually Gary's 102nd birthday, but today is Dominic's birthday. And um, she got the world passport in 1979. Dominic, did you have anything and want to share the experience of the passport? Yes, well, to share, I found the passport, but I have a question because it's different from 
your passport, David. And I got this at near the UN in '79, uh, and I became a global citizen after um, a stay at the Finhorn Foundation in Scotland, which is a spiritual community, which is very simple, no dogma, but therefore world, you know, peace and unity and all that. And so I traveled to Europe with my passport in '79. And that was a big deal. And I can't, yeah, I showed it in New York. And, you know, they were kind of, in those days, they were gentlemen. And they, they said, oh, that's interesting. Do you have another passport? So, of course, I had my, I wasn't a citizen yet, but I, I had the passport. I'm French by birth. And then I went to England, and oh, there they were very gentlemanly, even more. And I can't remember if they let me in, but uh, with that passport. But when I then I went to France on on the boat, I think in those days, and the the French people just let me, you know, oh, okay, you know, they let me in. But then when I came back to the United States from France. You know, that was 79 when the hostages were, you know, taken in Iran. And there was some other major thing happening. And a little, you know, I I felt I, I can't, you know, because at that time, the green card, I didn't have a, a, I wasn't a citizen. So I showed my, my other passport, but... You know, I'm so I couldn't find it first, but I'm so glad I kept it because in my heart, even though I was born in France and I'm American citizen, but I'm truly a world citizen. I mean, and I'm so happy not to drop them, but uh, I I was a, a gallery a director of a gallery, and I knew a, a well-known Japanese artist named Isamu Noguchi, and I love the fact he said he was a world citizen. And I wonder if people who are from two worlds, as I am from Europe and America, are more susceptible to be world citizens. It would be an interesting question for David. Uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm very grateful to, to still have it, even though I don't think I have any stamps on it. But so David, was this an early incarnation of your passport? Because it looks different, or is it the same? It is the same. There was a time during the 70s and 80s where the, uh, you know, the cover was a little bit different. Yeah. Uh -huh. That, you know, I think, I think that is, I, I'd have to, I'd, 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 I probably need you to, oh, that's, yeah, oh, you know yeah. what, that's the planetary passport. Actually, that's not. There was sort of a version with that color of the world passport, but the planetary passport was actually a separate organization, which, which uh, was, viewing their oh, I see. really as symbolic, whereas Gary Davis saw the World Passport as not only symbolic, but an actual practical tool that especially people um, who are or in stateless situations or in refugee situations, as well as the general public, could actually okay. use and get stamps in. Uh, but so the Planetary Passport was only around for maybe 15 or 20 years, like uh, probably about when uh -huh. you got in the 70s and 80s, because by the time I got to World Service Authority uh, in 19, beginning in 1992, they were just stopping issuing th that passport. I see. Yeah, they were by the United Nations and, you know, right, right. Uh, so I thought it was the same as yours, but it's so not. you're telling me it's a, it's a, oh yes, I see, planetary passport. Oh, so it's Melanie more symbolic. Now they can go ahead and put in the chat 
the link where you can sign up for an actual world passport, uh, and then you'll you'll have that for for future reference. Um, and then also, uh, uh, I I'm just wanted to say I'm very happy to see Kosi Tile from South Africa on the call. Uh, we have our our interns that have been doing a big help getting the project out, uh, both uh, uh, Caroline and Casa. Uh, and we have Richard Denton, who's an extraordinary uh, uh, world citizen doing work with Rotary International, and uh, Stefan, who's uh, another amazing world citizen who's uh, set setting up a, a screening. Mike is on here. Uh, and of course, Frank, uh, we heard from a little bit. So I'm so glad all of you are here. Um, and uh, as soon as Melanie is in, finished with that, uh, that uh, putting that in, I'd like her to tell us uh, while you're on the passport. Before we go back to, to Gary's immediate stories, her, her 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 story about a customs agent in Los Angeles who actually performed her own act of world citizenship. Uh, do you have a, a a moment, Melanie, to share that story? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So. Um... I wanted to get a lot of stamps in my world passport, and I did. And uh, what what we what is recommended is that if you have a different passport, like a national passport, you can add, you know show that first, especially for the tough countries like the United States. Um, show that first, but now with the what's going on is even more difficult but anyway so i showed my world passport uh, my american passport i said oh would you mind pa stamping the world passport and i showed it to her and she looked at me and said is this the passport we're not supposed to stamp and then before i could answer she goes and stamped it so it was very rewarding and then i did get french ones and um i you know two from the united states um and uh, I did Chile, um, the um, of course Easter Island. That was really easy, and uh, but a beautiful stamp, the best stamp. <laughs> anyway, as it's so so, what it is the world passport? If I, I'm sure everyone here knows this, but maybe for Dominique, it is an important humanitarian tool. It's we we want to spread the word. We want to get the passport. We want to have the world passport. It is part of an identity. It's part of li lifting us up a level. You know, keeping your nationality, keeping your citizen, your city. You know, keeping you know their town, keeping everything, and then just going up one level. So you so you think of others. So you think of the rest of the world, and share and and start to be more of a community. The world community. Community. And so I highly recommend everyone here, if you haven't already, go to that that little link that David put in, actually, um, and apply. As you can do it online, apply for the World Passport. That supports the amazing work that they're doing. They are helping so many people that are have no identity. They have nothing. So the World Passport is gold to them. It saved, has saved lives, will save lives, gets people out of refugee camps. It gives people the feeling of, I'm a human again, you know? And that is a very worthy cause. And plus, they, they're doing so so much at the World Service Authority, you know, there's the World uh, Court of Human Rights, the World Court of Human Rights, they're, they're working on that, they have World Citizen Clubs, um, of course, um, important to get our movie out, theworldismycountry.com, because that talks about world law, world citizenship, so all of these things are important, and I always say you must, or you know, you don't have to, but 
we all should uh, support what you want to see in the world. If you want to see a world where we're united, support the organizations that are doing and going towards that. Support the film by telling everyone about the film, getting everyone you know to watch it and uh, support, you know, maybe you know someone in the university. They can have a World Citizen Club. Did you know that there's a court? We're going to have a world court of human rights and that's being worked on as we speak. So I'll put those uh, links in the chat. Please uh, do what you can to support what you want to see in the world. So thank you. Just this morning, we got to, uh, I got to speak at the World Court of uh, Human Rights meeting and to share uh, Gary's synergistic uh, kind of ideas of how we evolve uh, that aspect of bottom-up people power democracy. Uh, uh, where will that replay be available to people, Gary? I mean, David? <laughs> uh, yeah, um, well, so we have recorded it. Uh, all those meetings, I I'm hoping that we'll put them on the worldcourtofhumanrights.net website sometime soon. Uh, I have to speak to Melissa, our government and organizational outreach manager, about that to make it available. And by the way, we do have uh, two petitions um, that, I, I, if I can quickly put the, I'll have to look them up actually, to put, but put them in the chat. Uh, for individuals and organizations to support, uh, not financially, but just you might say morally or intellectually, the idea of creating a world court of human rights and environmental and economic and other rights that this court can actually uh, help uh, where when all other lower level courts seem to fail or in places in the world like in Asia, where there's not even a regional human rights system. So definitely, I uh, will want to make the, the videos available. That's what we plan on doing, as well as those those uh, pledges to support it. Okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and share one other story. And that is uh, that when we were when we when we did the final act of filming for our show, uh, we were in Burlington and Gary was very ill with cancer at the time. And uh, he was so weak and frail that we took him to a doctor to see if he could do the show. And the doctor said, well, I think he can do it, but uh, you know, go ahead. So we had a special room for Gary and he was kind of had a little attendance to help. And he came kind of hobbling out onto the stage with his cane. And uh, in the movie, you see how he threw down his cane and says, what do I need this for? And he starts tap dancing. I mean, the transformation that happened when he got on stage was so astounding. I mean, here was this really little, this, this, this broken old man about, you know, you thought it was about ready to, to croak. And instead, he just came to life and had incredible power. And he told the story with such incredible beauty. Uh, and it's just uh, astounding to me how when he hit the stage, that just lit something inside of him that brought back that power from the past, a power from the universe, a power from somewhere beyond what our normal human capacity is. A superhuman power came out for him to be able to finish that movie. And he was so thrilled to see the rough cut before he died. And four, uh, four days before he died, he filmed the scenes where we showed him issuing the uh, world, world passport to Snowden. And on his way, in the to, when the when the uh, ambulance driver came to take him to hospice, he gave the ambulance driver a copy of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And until his very last moment, there in hospice. He was talking to the aides about world citizenship. This man never stopped, and he's still going today. So let's carry on what he's doing, all of us together. Carry it forward, because as Gary said, uh, it's in your hands now. World citizen, lift up your voices. 
Oh, you know we got something to say. All we need is the same directions, heading in one way. One way.